Okay. Um, we are going to jump right in because uh, the message is kind of long. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to try and I'd go at it pretty fast. Um, but I think it's long because it's really important to me. Um, and I hope that it's important to y'all too. Um, you can see pretty clearly um, what this message is about just, just by looking at your notes. But um, let, me, let me pray for us. And then um, I will read our passage, and then we'll get right into it. Um, actually, let me open to the passage first. It's Psalm 98. You can open there with me. Psalm 98. Let's read it. O oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the way that it speaks, speaks to our lives, the way that it transforms us and our hearts, the ways that it gives us a picture of you that is so glorious and so beautiful. Father, I pray that you would help us glean much from this psalm. May the language that you have given us in this psalm shape the way that we see our lives, shape the way that we talk about life, and may we come away from this message as a singing people who love your gospel and sing loudly because of it. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Every week we come to youth group and we start off our evening with singing. Musical worship, we call it. If you grew up in the church, that's pretty standard, right? You just sing. You've been doing it all your life um, without question. It's just what you do, right? As we see in our psalm today even, it's commanded, so we just do it. But imagine if you didn't grow up going to church. Imagine if one day you just got invited to this thing called youth group at a place called Lighthouse Community Church. And when you get there, the first thing they do during their meeting time is they stand up and they sing. Like full on karaoke time, lyrics on the screen and everything. How weird would that be? Have you ever asked yourself, why, why do we sing? The answer, to put it really simply, is because we are made to sing and because we have reason to sing. In our passage, we are going to explore those reasons that we have to sing. But before we get there, I want us to understand 
this command to sing and why it's significant for us, both as people and as Christians. So our intro point is to sing is to be human. To sing is to be human. And I want to talk about why first before we get into the passage. If you think about it, singing is a very ordinary part of life. We sing in the shower, we sing in the car, we sing and hum when we're happy and even when we're sad too. Singing is not exclusive to musical worship. Um, it's just part of who we are, it's part of life, right? Ever since you were a kid, singing is just part of, a natural part of life. God has designed us in such a way that singing connects deeply to our hearts and it captures and expresses what we feel, what we love and what we adore. But what makes singing important? Why is it that singing is the second most com common command in the Bible? Why singing and not other things like art and work or making money and giving that to the church or, or other things? Why is singing so important to God? The answer is that the Bible depicts music and singing in particular in a way that shows an important connection between the act of singing and what it means to be human. One author says it like this, to praise him is the original desire sewn into every fiber of our God-designed being and into every aspect of our God-designed world. When we sing God's praise, we join with the tune of the cosmos. I have a few reasons um, why singing is so important to us as humans and as Christians. These are your first three subpoints. First, because we are made to be like God who sings. Because we are made to be like God who sings. God himself sings. Zephaniah 3 says that God will rejoice over redeemed Israel with shouts of joy, exulting over them with loud singing. Jesus sings with his disciples on the nights of his betrayal in Matthew 26, and he probably sang weekly in the synagogue on the Sabbath, in places, for example, like Luke 4, 16. The Holy Spirit also is active um, when he fills our hearts, or fills the hearts of Christians with affection and love for God when they sing truth-filled praises. In this way, as we can see, the Trinity is participating in this act of singing. And we sing because we are made to be like him, like our God who sings. The second reason is we sing because we are commanded to sing. We sing because we are commanded to sing. The Bible has over 400 mentions of singing. And about 50 of those mentions are direct commands to God's people to sing, just like it, how it is commanded in this psalm. Verse 1, sing to the Lord a new song. Singing is commanded in the Bible. And if we as humans are created by God for his glory and his pleasure, then he knows what is good for us. And obeying his commands is what will bring us most joy and lasting fulfillment. We sing because we are commanded to sing. Finally, we sing because singing is a special tool from God that enables us to praise him. Singing is a special tool from God 
that enables us to praise him. There's this collection of questions and answers about the foundations of Christianity called the Westminster Catechism. And in the Shorter Catechism, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? Or to rephrase it, the question is, for what purpose does mankind exist? Why do humans exist? And the answer that the Catechism gives is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. This act of praising God is at the center of who we are made to be as human beings. And singing is a means that helps us accomplish that. If you think about it, singing, this act of putting words and melody together, it's an act that's completely unique to human beings. And it doesn't really serve any other purpose than expression. Expression of feeling and emotion. And thus, as a tool of expression, singing points to what is felt, trusted in, or treasured in the heart. And though it might only serve this very specific function, I think that music, that singing in particular, expresses the heart better than any other medium that we have. For example, have you ever experienced times when you understand God's word better when you sing it? Have there been times when you trusted and believed truth of scripture more because you sang it? Have you ever been able to recall Bible verses or really anything for the matter because they were in the lyrics of a song? Right? As a kid, to study or to do anything really, to remember anything, you make a song for it. Like my parents would make me sing my phone number or my, my home phone number. I don't actually remember the song anymore. Like, two, one, four, something like that. Um, but that's how they knew that, that singing was a powerful tool to help you remember. That is the power of music. God has designed music to connect with us in such a special way that we come alive to truth when we sing. In that way, singing is a gift from God that connects our minds to our hearts and our emotions and our actions. Singing is a special means from God to help us express praise to God and thus be who we are made to be as worshipers. Sing, to sing is to be human. John Piper, I think, says it best. Music and singing are necessary to Christian faith and worship for the simple reason that the realities of God and Christ, creation and salvation, heaven and hell, are so great that when they are known truly and felt duly, they demand more than discussion and analysis and description. They demand poetry and song and music. Singing is the Christian's way of saying, God is so great that thinking will not suffice. There must be deep feeling and talking will not suffice. There must be singing. So if singing is naturally a part of who we are, it only makes sense that we are a singing people, especially during the times when we meet together. Why? It's because it is on Fridays and Sundays that we intentionally set aside time as a church to unite who we are made to be with the God we are made for. We fulfill our purpose by rehearsing what we love and adore in singing. That's what corporate worship is. That's what we're doing when we sing together. 
And all of that is because we are given reasons to sing and to worship in the scriptures. So in our psalm tonight, I want us to look at three reasons why we actually sing our hearts out. We've seen that to sing is to be human. But specifically, why? What reasons do we have to sing? Our main idea from Psalm 98 tonight is sing because God is Savior, King, and Judge. Sing because God is Savior, King, and Judge. Point number one, sing because God is Savior. Let me read um, the first three verses of our psalm again. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. This psalm is structured like a shout of praise that rings out from Israel to the whole world. In each stanza, you might notice that the command to sing is given to a wider and a wider audience. First to Israel, then all people, then to all creation. And each stanza presents a different way that God relates to the world. The first stanza sees God as savior. It begins with a command, sing to the Lord. But naturally, we have to ask why. Why should we sing? For what reason? And the following statement gives it to us plainly. For he has done marvelous things. Why sing? Because God has done marvelous things. But what are those marvelous things? To figure that out, we need to go back in time and think about why this specific psalm was written and how it was used. As we've talked about many times throughout the summer, the book of Psalms is a collection of poems, of songs for the people of Israel. And we can think of it like a hymnal, a songbook that the people would sing from when they gathered together to worship God. The range of topics and emotions in the Psalms are really broad, or is really broad. It spans from adoration and thanksgiving to lament and crying out to God in repentance and dependence. And really all of the facets of human experience have some sort of expression in the Psalms. And this Psalm specifically is part of this collection that was used for public worship. It's almost as if these are congregational worship Psalms. And it doesn't explicitly explicitly say who wrote this one, so we don't know, but we'll just call him the Psalmist. And in this first section, verses 1 through 3, the psalmist is talking specifically to Israel. He gives this command, and then he lists marvelous things that God has done in verses 2 and 3. And this list is supposed to call the people's minds back to the past, to remember what God, who God is, and what he has done. And in the same way for us, this first three, these first three verses are supposed to cause us to remember and respond to God in praise as well. But what are those things? Let's look at them specifically. First, he says in the second half of verse one, his right hand and holy arm have worked salvation for him. The first thing that the psalmist draws the people's attention to is God's power. 
In the Bible, the right hand is generally regarded as the strong, dominant hand. And so the mention of God's right hand points to his might, his strength. God is powerful. Holy, in verse 2, emphasizes that this isn't any mere man's arm. This is the arm of God. His salvation is supernatural. It's not anything that a mere human being could do. This God is superior over all and cannot be challenged or thwarted. Salvation implies victory for the people of Israel. It paints a picture of unopposed triumph from God, protection and deliverance for God's people. This is a warrior God saving and standing guard over his people Israel. It's a powerful picture of God. Second, the psalmist says in verse 2, he has made known his salvation and he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. The second reason, the second marvelous thing that God has done that the psalmist mentions is, not, is that not only is this warrior God standing over and fighting for his people as an example to Israel specifically to put their hope in him, but it also serves as, as an example to the rest of the world. By loving and saving Israel, God reveals his, his victory and his goodness and his perfections to the whole world. And the whole world is supposed to look at Israel and see that they serve the one true God. Third, the psalmist gets to the crux of the reasons why Israel should sing to the Lord. He says, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. To the Jewish congregation, the words he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness would have popped out to them. And that's because this idea of steadfast love appears all throughout the history of the people of Israel. And it would draw their minds back to the many ways that God has been loving to them. For example, what are the ways that God has been loving, steadfast, has shown steadfast love and faithfulness to the people of Israel? These words would describe, would generally describe the relationship that God had with his people, his covenantal people. And from the beginning of Israel's history with Abraham, God had committed to loving them with a special love. In Genesis 22, God specially chooses Abraham and makes this promise to him. He says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the shore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is a promise from God showing that he is committed to the people of Israel in steadfast love. Later, other examples would be when Moses is given the law at Sinai and God says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will, know by, no, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
the Israelites would later sing this specific psalm with deliverance from Assyria and Babylon in mind. They were in captivity, in exile, under a, a, a kingdom, an empire who had destroyed Israel and all of their hope with it. But then God miraculously saves them from captivity, frees them from exile, and brings them home. These are the contexts that would have come to mind when the Israelites would hear steadfast love and faithfulness. And this steadfast love, these examples are relevant to the whole world because it shows that God is faithful. It's relevant to us because it shows that God is steadfast in his love and faithful to us, that he's faithful to follow through with his promises and that he has the power to do so as well. It calls, these words call to mind all of who God has been to them, powerful, righteous, faithful, and loving. And it's a declaration from the people that God is who he said he would be. He follows through. Now we have also had a similar experience, haven't we? In the same way that God freed the Israelites from captivity under Babylon, God frees you from the captivity of sin. This is what Ephesians 2 talks about. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sin separates you from God. It enslaves you. It destroys you and ultimately condemns you to hell. But Paul goes on in verse 4 to say, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By his grace and because of his steadfast love, God sets you free from the bondage of sin through Jesus. This is God's most wonderful act. This is the true and full salvation, the victory that God has made known to the Israelites and to all people, including us. This is the extent of his steadfast love and faithfulness, that he would even send his own son to suffer and die for you and me. And in response to this glorious reality, we should have no other response than to break out in joyful singing. Saved people like us are singing people. People who understand and love the gospel will sing in worship. A lot of people think that the definition of worship is an act of bringing an offering to God. That it's something that you do for God. But what we see in this psalm and in the history of Israel is that though it's not less than doing something for God, it actually starts with what God does for you. It starts with what God does for you as your savior. True worship and our singing always, always starts as a response 
to what God has done and who he is. It begins with remembrance. So who is God? What has he done for you? Call to mind those wondrous things. Have you been washed clean by the blood of Jesus? That is God's grace to you. Is there anything good in your life? That is God's undeserved kindness to you. Have you ever felt happiness in your life? That is a gift from God. Have you ever felt love from your parents or from your friends? That is God loving you through them. Have you ever overcome an obstacle or survived a season of sadness? That was God's hand delivering you. Even today, the fact that you woke up this morning, that you are still being held together by God, that you are here in this room is grace. Even when life is really hard, when it's busy, when it's filled with sadness or mourning or doubt or fear, the fact that God has sustained you even just a little bit more just to live today is an expression of his love to you. That is God proving to you his steadfast love. Do you recognize it? My grandfather was a man who sang loudly in response to God. His God who had done marvelous things in his life. Over the course of his life, my grandfather endured many hardships and trials from the threat of internment during World War II to war that he experienced himself, to racism and discrimination, to the difficulties of Christian ministry as a pastor, even the death of his son. But through all of it, God proved to be a gracious and steadfast king to my grandfather. And because of God's sustaining grace through his life, my grandfather had this reputation of being a loud and jolly singer and a very faithful, loving Christian. Over the past five years, as his health and mind began to deteriorate, my grandfather only sang louder. Falls, injuries, dialysis, emergency hospital trips, Physical therapy all became very routine for our family. But through it all, even when he had no voice as he lay in his hospital bed, he would close his eyes and sing to his God. He would sing what he could manage to croak because that's just how worth God, worth it, it he was. And when he would be discharged from the hospital every time, or when he would be wheeled out of dialysis in his wheelchair, he would always be joyfully singing the song, he looked beyond my faults and saw my needs. Always so that he could minister to the other patients on his floor with the same hope that he enjoyed in Christ his savior. On the night before he passed away, my family and I sat with him on his bed and sang his favorite songs. At this point, he couldn't move his body. Dialysis wasn't working for him. All his physical faculties were failing his mind too. And the weakness of his physical heart and the slow pump of blood through his body made him lethargic and tired. And my grandmother, had to sit by his side and lift his arms just so that he could manage to take the tiniest breath. This had been, been his evening routine for months. 
but still at the end of the night as we sang together. He was able to open his mouth just enough to whisper, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know that he holds the future, life is worth the living because he lives. Even on his deathbed, my grandfather proclaimed the steadfast love of God. God was just that good. He was that glorious and that gracious, that worth singing to, that worth praising and proclaiming, even through the weakness and decay of old age. God had been so gracious to my grandfather in saving him and in giving him new life that he sang. And as my grandfather passed into eternity, we together as a family called to mind his goodness to my grandfather for years and for years. And we could not help but sing his praises. This is the pattern for the Christian life. We worship and we sing because God shows us grace every day in salvation through Jesus. Everything in life is fuel for worship, guys. Because all of it is imbued with the grace of God. So call God to mind. Sing to him. If the psalmist is calling us to sing new songs every day as a response to the marvelous salvation and victory that God has accomplished for us, then we should be singing new songs every day because God is doing and will do new marvelous things in our lives every day. Are you watching? Everything is grace, therefore everything is fuel to sing. So sing for God. God is our savior. Point two, sing, sing because God is king. Remember how the last section said that all the nations and all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of the Lord? In this second stanza, all the people of the world are roped in as well. And this is because by being faithful to Israel, God has proven himself to be almighty king. If you look at verses four, five, and six, it talks about how the people of the world join in on the singing and even bring instruments. The instruments noted here, the lyre, the harp, the trumpets, and the horn all combined together with the singing would make this super loud and triumphant noise before the Lord. This is a celebration. There's something here, though, that I want to point out about the sound specifically that is being made. Notice that these commands to sing don't include any descriptors that measure quality. There's nothing that commands that the singing has to necessarily sound good. It doesn't say, make a beautiful noise to the Lord. Or it doesn't say, break out in perfect three-part harmonies and sing praises on beat. It doesn't say, make a perfectly on-pitched noise before the king, the Lord. The quality of the sound is not commanded in any way. But what does the passage say? It says, make a joyful noise. Rather than describing the sound of a worshiper, 
The psalmist describes the heart of a worshiper. The heart of a true worshiper is filled with joy. It's joy that bubbles up and pours out into loud singing. And where does that joy come from? It comes from setting our eyes on the King, the Lord, and enjoying his salvation, provision, and his kingship over our lives. The application here is that God isn't disappointed when you don't sing well, so don't worry if you don't have a good singing voice. At the same time, he's not particularly impressed when you think you sing well too. He cares about what is going on in your heart. He wants joyful hearts that are focused on him. He loves hearts that are filled with joy in response to who he is and what he's done. That is your true worship, for your heart to be filled with emotion, joy, and love at the thought of him, who is your salvation, and to live in obedience and commitment to him. The main instrument of worship that you bring to Friday and Sunday isn't your voice, it's your heart. And when you are truly making melody to the Lord with your heart, you're not going to care what other people think about what you, how you sound. When you know that God doesn't care about the sound specifically that you make, but the heart behind it, then your worries about sounding good are just going to melt away. And if you are hesitant to sing during times of musical worship because you do care, then consider your heart. Do you care more about what God thinks about you? or what others think about you. We should also consider what's going on in our hearts when we don't want to sing. I understand that some of you don't like singing. That's totally natural. Others of you have stuff going on in life or are in seasons of struggle where singing happy songs at church just feels fake and forced. There are days when you're struggling with school or a family member is sick and, or you got in a fight with your parents or a friend said really despicable or hurtful things behind your back and you come to youth group and you just don't feel like it. The command to sing a new song feels burdensome. Believe it or not, I feel that a lot. Mustering up the will to sing is hard. There are going to be those kind of days all the time. But those days are the best time to obey this command. The days when you don't want to sing are the days when it's most worth it to try. There are a few reasons why you must sing when you don't want to or don't feel like it. The first is singing when you don't feel like it is the best way to start feeling like it. God can use music and truth in these songs to arouse your affections and wake you up to the goodness of truth. There will always be times when you know what the right thing to do is, but you don't want to do it. And of course, we want to be able to desire to do the things that we ought to do. But we should not wait to feel rightly before we act rightly. When it comes to singing, the Lord can use music to generate the right feelings in our hearts. By setting our minds on truth in singing, even when we don't feel like it, God, by his Holy Spirit, awakens us to love and believe truth. When you don't want to sing, think about the words of songs. Dwell on Jesus. 
Take the first verse of the song, Before the Throne of God Above, that we sang together. It says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. This song depicts this classic courtroom scene that we see often in the Bible. The lyrics remind us that as Christians, when we come before God, instead of cowering in fear before glorious and righteous God who sits on his throne, we can cling to our great high priest, Jesus, and stand confidently beside him. Love is so much a part of him that he wears it as a name. His love is so steadfast that he endured the great suffering of the cross on your behalf. His commitment to you is so strong that he always stands beside you and pleads before God on your behalf. Because of the perfections of Jesus, no matter what anyone says, as long as he represents us before God at the right hand of the Father, we will never be cast away from him. Never. This is a powerful depiction of Christ's love for us. And if we are truly saved, considering these kind of realities should set fire to our hearts. It sparks awe and a feeling of unworthiness and gratitude and love in our hearts that pours out in affection and singing. If God truly cares more about what is in our hearts than what comes out of our mouths, then singing, position, singing positions our hearts to worship with joy. And obeying the command to do the act of singing is a spark that lights a fire of passion in our hearts for him. When your soul is downcast and tired and discouraged, when you feel fake, sing. Let God bring you alive. The second reason is because the youth group also needs you to sing. Everyone in this youth group needs to hear you sing and needs the encouragement that your voice brings. Consider the second verse of Before the Throne. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. As much as this is a confession for your own heart to make, it's also a confession that you are making to other people around you. You're saying, I believe this. I believe that despite the ugliness and the depth of my sin that should condemn me and separate me from God forever, because of Jesus, because my sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is washed clean of sin and counted as, as free before God. And I believe that when God looks at me, he sees Christ and his perfect righteousness, not my sin, not my dirty rags, and he is satisfied. He is happy. People need to hear you declare that. What do you think that does for people who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior? 
The person standing in front of you or behind you may never have thought of Christ's death and resurrection as so powerful. He or she might not believe that God could love him so much to save them through Jesus and be satisfied in Christ. But maybe hearing you sing it and believe it, maybe that makes it real to them. Maybe it stirs emotion and love for God in their heart. Even take the, the last verse, the last um, lyrics of this song. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ, my savior and my God. This is a call to look on Christ, to set our eyes on his glory and behold the risen lamb. This king came down from his throne to die for you. And because he who is perfect and spotless humbled himself and rose from the grave, if you are a Christian, if you are purchased by his blood, you are united with him and you will never die. No matter what storm comes your way, no matter what sin encumbers you, no matter what the enemy takes away from you, your life is eternally hidden. It's protected by Christ your Savior and your God in heaven forever. This is the life of the Christian. It is the state of being held safely and securely in the protection and rest of Jesus Christ. What encouragement could that be for the person in youth group who is burdened by expectations and anxiety about the future? How much does she maybe need to hear that her life is hidden with Christ, that she is being protected by her Savior, and awaiting for her is an eternity with him too? What hope could that incite in her heart to remember that she can trust her God who is near to her and who is carrying her home to glory? What hope could that incite in her heart to be surrounded by people who are singing the same truth to the same God. When you don't want to sing, remember that there are people around you who need you to sing. To sing, to incite your heart to worship, and sing to help others believe and worship too. Our last point, creation, sing because God is judge. Sing because God is judge. This last section turns toward the future. Specifically, the future when Jesus himself comes back to establish his kingdom and rule over his earth forever. Not only do all people rejoice and sing praise to him, but even the earth itself, even all of creation, the wind and waves and rivers and mountains and all the animals and plants and created things that fill it will sing in praise to God. Listen to this imagery. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. The psalm imbues this description of creation praising God with life to the point that even 
the rivers and hills become almost like people bursting into joyous praise before God. The last part of verse 9 says, For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. At the very end of the psalm, we finally get to the reason why all of creation joins in on this singing. All of the earth rejoices because the Lord comes to judge the earth. But we have to ask, how can judgment result in joy? You might not consider God's coming to judge the earth to be a good thing. It's probably a scary thing to you. But this psalm shows us that God coming to judge the world with righteousness is the best thing. It is what all of creation longs for. And that is because at the end, he will reign in righteousness without question and without opposition forever. When Jesus comes again, he's going to judge the living and the dead. All people who have ever lived will have to give an account for how they lived. And those who trusted in Christ as their savior and lived in obedience to his lordship will be granted eternal life. While everyone who did not receive will, re- will receive just punishment for the rebellion in hell. The righteous will be vindicated and the wicked will be punished. And then Jesus is going to completely remake the heavens and the earth so that all of creation is completely free from sin. Christ will restore the perfect wholeness that, will, that was intended for the world in Eden and make it even more good. All suffering will be set right, every tear wiped away, strivings will cease, pain and sin will be no more. And better yet, God's children, his elect, who were saved by grace through faith, will live with him in perfect, unhindered communion with him, enjoying him and singing to him and worshiping him face to face forever. This is the future that is promised to us in this psalm. We rejoice, we sing, we make a joyful noise because we know deep in our hearts that Jesus is Lord, that his rule and reign will never be questioned, and that he is coming again. Yahweh is not only God over Israel, but he is God over all the world, and he will rule. The sum of all Christian hope lies in the truth that Christ will one day come again. When we sing together on Fridays and Sundays, we are practicing and waiting in anticipation for that day. And on the day when he comes back, we will sing because our hearts are so filled with joy that we have our King and Savior, our God, who has come to be with us forever. Jesus is not just some cool dude who we pray to and who died for our sins. No. Jesus is king over all kings. He is Lord over all lords. He is the firstborn over all creation, the pinnacle of all history. He is the sun in our solar system, the main character of our story. And best of all, he is yours. He's your savior. He's your king. He's your judge. 
He is the one who you live for, the one who you most treasure and adore. And if you put your faith in him and live for him, the day you see him face to face will be the start of eternal peace, eternal satisfaction, eternal rest, eternal joyful singing. High schoolers, let's sing. God is our savior, our king and judge. And he commands and compels us to make a joyful noise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have reason to sing, that you are so glorious as our savior, king and judge, that even the whole earth will one day cry out in praises to you when you return to judge your earth. We thank you that, that we have, have been able to receive the gift of salvation in Christ, that we have life in him. And we thank you that every day you are filling our lives with grace in ways that we recognize, in ways that we don't. We thank you that we have reason to sing. Father, I ask that you would help us to think more intentionally about our times of singing that you would help us to, to see every time we gather for corporate worship, that these are special moments that you've given us to enjoy truth and to know it and trust it and love it more deeply and for our hearts to explode and overflow with joyful singing and praise to you and love. I ask that you would make us as a high school ministry, a singing people, even if we're not good singers, or even if we don't even like singing, because you are so worth it, because you are so glorious, because you are so righteous and so good and so marvelous and lovely, I, I pray that we would be overcome with love for you because we treasure our Savior and because we treasure the truths of Scripture that we just can't help but sing. Help us during this time even of response to sing to you in joy. And may our hearts and our lives ever be marked by a love for you that pours out in joyful singing. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen.